Today is the third week in our four-week series on small letters with a big message. And so the scripture reading for today comes to us from 3 John. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about you and your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God, and anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I don't want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord. A small letter with a big message. This is a small church going through a big problem. So John writes to them, Hey Gaius, don't get stressed out. It's going to get figured out. And some deep conversations at the Apostles' house. Headstrong church father and a malicious brother. Leadership paradigms that oppose each other. So I'm writing this letter in love. And he does this whole thing, writes this whole letter, uh, because they're going through a really big problem. Now, the elder here, he... he uh, identifies himself as the elder. We talked about this last week. He doesn't use his name. We know it's John because historical textual critics will say that um, all three letters were written around 9095 AD. And he's very old. And all of the other apostles, sadly, by this time, have been martyred. So he's the only one left. So if you get a letter in the mail and it says, uh, hey, it's Bono, you're not going to say, which Bono? Because there's certain people and their first name is enough. And at this point, John can just say, the elder, and everybody knows we're talking about John. Because he's really old and he's one of the church, church fathers, and so uh, all scholarship agrees. That's, that's why he addresses it this way. And uh, he writes to Gaius, and Gaius is a very, very common name in the Roman Empire. He's named after the Caesar. Caesar was uh, Gaius Caesar Augustus. And so there was every other kid it would have seemed was named uh, Gaius at the time. There's four different texts that where Gaius is mentioned in the New Testament, but nobody's 100% sure that it's this guy because the name was so common. Uh, it was just named after the, one of the reigning emperors. And so I'd be like a lot of people getting named Drake today after one of our reigning emperors. So that's what we're dealing with. And 
He says to him, um, I pray that you'll prosper and be in health just as your soul prospers. Some of your translations will say that. It's a famous phrase. If you've been in church for any length of time, that's like a famous phrase. I pray that you'll prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. It's, it sounds very Star Trek. This was a very common greeting at the time. Super common. And uh, so on the one hand, it's so common, it's just prayer hands, prayer hands, dancing salsa emoji. Everybody knows what it means. But then on the other hand, there's a real generosity in the life of this man, Gaius. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. So he goes on in the letter to say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that means that there's obviously a lot of evidence in this man's life. There's been a forging of character. There's been a reshaping of his values. That even though Gaius has uh, grown up in a Greco-Roman context and surely it, for his adult life would have embraced all of the values of Rome, there's been a real forging of character. There's been a real transformative power of the Holy Spirit in his life whereby now his, his whole way of being and living has been reshaped by the gospel, by um, not only the the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ, but the implications of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and the life-changing implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if there's a bodily resurrection of Jesus, meaning that it's pointing forward to the renewal of the material, which we talk about a lot here, then that says something about the way I ought to relate to my humanity. And so there's been a huge reshaping in Gaius, and he is now really walking in this truth. He's it's not just a head trip. His faith is not just some private spiritual thing. He's walking in something. It's just describing his life. He's living into a new narrative. Everybody lives according to narratives. The Greco-Roman world lived according to particular narratives. Our culture in this city today, we live according to particular narratives. And so Gaius is now walking in a new narrative of that he belongs to God. He is his child. Jesus Christ is his king. It's just reshaped everything. And when you think about what that looks like, it's just visceral and it's real. Think of like little kids who will put on their parents' shoes and clomp around the house. And everyone's like, oh, that's so cute. And like, quick, get the camera. We've got to get a picture of this because this has never been captured on film before. Everybody has photos of kids wearing their parents' shoes because there's something about the imitation that's just so endearing. And even if it's not a parent, you sometimes will see a sibling want to emulate or imitate an older sibling. And it's so cute. Or friends that spend a lot of time together start to kind of talk like each other or even sort of dress like each other. Or you get like a kid who has posters all over their room of a particular athlete. And they want to emulate that athlete so much that they begin to model their game. They'll slow the game film down. How did they do that move? How did he take that slap shot? How did, he, how did he get the ball into that position? How did this work? And they just want to walk in something. It's just so visceral. Walking and living it. It's just very real. And that's why he says, I heard these reports. And he's, John is really excited about the practice. Because it's the main thing. It's what's qualified Gaius to be a leader in the church. The main thing is the main thing. He's not like, yep, I've just checked all the ideological boxes. We believe the same thing as you. I've got a pretty good attendance record. Now this guy's like, it's somehow flowing out of his life. And so John takes time to write a letter about this. He's just so encouraged by it. And then he says that one of the ways this has walked out is he's showing this huge hospitality to brothers and sisters who are strangers. And this is worth noting because the, he's talking about 
the people that Gaius is permitting to come into the church to teach the church. He gets it a little bit later by saying the way that you send them off in a manner worthy of God. So these are this little infant, you know, early church where people are coming in to teach. And, and Gaius has to determine who he's going to show hospitality to to be able to teach the church. And, and uh, this is important because today it's very easy to make sure that the person that's going to come in when I go away on holidays or something like that is going to have good sound teaching, good sound doctrine, and be a good preacher of the gospel. I can easily do that. You go online, you can read things, you can listen to things. You, we're a mobile culture. I can get in my car and go to presbytery meetings and hear other people preach and speak, and I can make mental notes and say, that was, that was a really encouraging sermon. When I'm gone from the church, I want this person to come. And so whenever I go away, I always am very specific and intentional with who comes here. I don't just go, yo, I got to get out of here, and whoever comes in says whatever they like. It's very easy for me to ensure this. In the ancient world, it was not easy. You didn't know. People, there was no means of fact-checking the way that it was today. If they looked the part and they came into the city and they were like, I'm a teacher of the gospel, they were like, the podium's that way. That's why the Apostle Paul spoke in so many places that people later regretted that they gave him the spot. Because he looked the part. Right? He, 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 he walked, and walked and spoke in a manner that they're like, yeah, this guy obviously belongs here. You know, years ago, Isaiah was going to a, uh, a concert in Toronto. And I was dropping him and his friend at this concert. And I'm like, I got to work for the day in Toronto. So where am I going to work? I want to work someplace nice. Ah, Hotel X, right on the water. Luxurious hotel in Toronto. Super posh, super nice, super modern. I've never actually stayed there. But I'm like, I want to work there. But I want to make sure that... Um, yeah, I don't get kicked out. So what do I do? I dress for the part. I look the part. I dress in a way that it's going to make sense that I can walk in there. This is a victimless crime. Relax. I can see some of you guys are concerned about my moral ambiguity. But anyway, so I just dressed for the part. And I walked right in the front door of Hotel X. And there's a security guy there. So I made a point of walking right over to him, looking him right in the eye and being like, hey, how's it going, man? He's like, good. I'm like, good. And I walked in and then I sat down in front of the desk. And I worked in this beautiful space all day. I worked there and... And, uh, I, but I wasn't a guest at the hotel. So on the, I enjoyed myself, but I had no business of being there. But here's the thing. If you look the part and you walk in and you look people in the eye and you sound like you belong there, in the ancient world, they're like, yeah, clearly this guy is a teacher. So this teaches us something about Gaius and something that, it, that, that is encouraging for us. And it's that this guy had tremendous discernment. So the points that I want to look at this morning are, firstly, the... The, the, um, the problem at the church in Ephesus. And secondly, the relevance for the church today. So the problem at the church in Ephesus was that the church stopped flourishing because one of the elders, one of the leaders, attempted to orient the church around his views and his personality, and he was driven by a, bu- a bruised, busy ego. That was the problem. But... But John is encouraged by Gaius, who, in contrast to Diotrephes, who is a mega problem in the church, this guy has really good discernment. He knows who belongs there. And then he's showing those folks really good generosity. He's giving them hospitality, feeding them, bringing them in, allowing them to teach, and then sending them on a way that the text says, in a manner worthy of God. That means a bag full of money. That's what that means in... in, in, in the ancient literal context. 
making sure that the people who are preaching and teaching in the church can afford to leave and eat and sleep and stay until they get to the next church where they can preach and teach the gospel. And then that church has a responsibility to care for them. That was the context. And so um, the significance of, of, of that sort of generosity uh, teaches us that Gaius just had this real proper understanding of the gospel and of sound teaching. And he goes on to say uh, regarding Gaius, you do faithfully whatever you do. This love that's in action. And this explains why in the beginning, John would pray, I pray that you prosper and be in health just as your soul is prospering. It makes sense that he would pray for a physical prosperity and a material financial prosperity because Gaius is the kind of guy that is not moved by prosperity. He's moved by generosity. And so this is significant. You know, I knew an elderly guy in our old church context, and he was a very kind man, and his name was Earl Pitts, and he used this phrase all the time whenever he was helping people with their finances. He worked for IBM for years, and then he was involved in budgeting various projects for years, and he was always helping people in the church get on budgets and be smart with their money. And one of the things that Earl would always say is he would say, how much is enough? That's a great question that most North Americans don't answer. Because we're like goldfish, we'll just eat ourselves to death financially. How much is enough? We have no idea. What's your budget? I have no idea. How generous can you be? I have no idea. Because every time I get a raise, I just, like a gold chip fish, I just absorb the, the food that drops into my tank. And so Earl would ask the question, how much is enough? Because once you know what's going to cover my mortgage or my rent and my expenses and my food and enjoying you know, life in a reasonable way, not in ridiculous opulence, then I know I have now money that I can be generous with. And so Gaius was the kind of guy who had answered the question, how much is enough? So he was able to be generous, continually generous, and he was fostering that generosity, or trying to, in the church, except for Diotrephes was being a big problem. So this is why uh, we started putting that box at the back of the auditorium, because many of us give digitally, and uh, that's why we speak about our giving each week, and we don't just want it in the background, because generosity is always marked the church. Generosity is why the church has been able to be preserved for millennia. And one of our members said to me, um, hey, you know, our, we were talking to our little one about uh, giving, and we'd love to be able to help her, teach her to give, but, like, you know, e-transfers is a pretty abstract concept for about 15 years for our children. So I was like, oh, my goodness, you're right. So the elders were like, yeah, that's right. How are we going to teach our children in the post-pandemic scenario, to be generous. So the box comes back and the little ones can go back and get a sense of, yes, I'm giving to preserve the preaching of Jesus and feed the homeless in the city and do the kinds of things that Jesus wants us to do. And so he goes on to say, even about him in the text, he says, you know, you didn't even take anything from the Gentiles, meaning that the gospel was funded by those that believe the gospel. As moderns, we'd say, well, of course. But in the ancient context, traveling teachers, traveling philosophers, you stand in the street, you share your philosophies, you know, there's no streaming services. So it's like, yo, this dude's talking, let's sit down and hear what he's got to say. Very common. And so they'd sit and listen, and then they would sort of receive an offering to, you know, thank you for the teaching or the entertainment or what have you, and they would sort of support these traveling teachers and philosophers. But what Gaius did was he said, no, 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 we're not crowdfunding the gospel. There's no GoFundMe for the message of Jesus. The people that believe in the message of Jesus will fund and, and will preserve the message of Jesus. And so he's commended by that. And all of this just shows this, that Gaius is a gem. 
Smash cut to Diotrephes. The big huge problem in the church. Oh my goodness. John publicly rebukes him. John names him. Names the guy. Calls him out. Is that unloving to do that? It could be. If I just stood up here and decided I was going to just preach like an angry hornet's nest and find somebody that I didn't agree with and then blast them, that would be wildly inappropriate because my whole motivation would not be to somehow serve you in following a particular stream that I thought pastorally was unhelpful. It would just sort of be me unloading my guns and feeling better when I went home. And so is it unloving that he names this guy? No, it isn't. Why? Well, we're given some good clues here. And if you've ever watched Sherlock on the BBC, you know that when you look at the small details, all sorts of glorious things emerge. So, let's take a look at some hermeneutical details here. uh, Because this is hermeneutics, my dear Watson. So why does he name the guy? Because there there is an ego-driven leadership in the church. It is very unloving. If you parse it apart, it would actually be unloving for John to not call this out. Permitting people to be hurt, permitting people to get cast out of the church. Diotrephes is like, oh, you don't agree with me? You're out of here. For John to let that continue, that would be unloving. So this letter comes out of a place of deep caring. The first thing he says about Diotrephes is that he loves preeminence. Okay, well, that's, that's a clue. He loves preeminence. Diotrephes in the Greek, by the way, means cherished by Zeus. So perhaps when Diotrephes came to faith in Christ, which he did... So there was a piece of being cherished by Zeus and loving the preeminence that never got worked out in his sanctification. And this guy loves preeminence. That's a problem because Jesus Christ, who is preeminent, did not count it appropriate to grasp at his divinity. But he emptied himself, Philippians says, and became a servant. And so we do have a model for leadership in the church, and it looks like the way down. The cross is about stooping and serving and caring and loving. It's not preeminence and power and prestige. And so Diotrephes is essentially the opposite. He's not a receiving the apostles. Imagine that. John says, hey, I wrote to the church and Diotrephes was like, mm, I don't think so. Now Diotrephes is not the, the pastor or the leader of the church, but he has some, he's, has some form of leadership in the church and he's seen it, his mission in life to block the church. Every church kind of maybe has a diatrophism. But this is a person whose bruised and wounded ego is now driving the way that they're sort of trying to curve the church towards themselves. This is what he's doing. He's casting people out of the church. He's not receiving the apostles. John wants to come. Hey, it's me, the elder. Yeah, I know who you are, but you're not coming here. You're not teaching here. Can you imagine such a thing? That's what's going on. So you can imagine John like... And that's why the letter is very short. He ends the letter by saying, I got a lot of things I want to say, a lot of things, but we're going to come face to face. So we can, we're going to have some deep conversations at the apostles' house. We're going to work this out. So consider this uh, diatrophies. We don't know what the process was that he was elected to leadership, but now it's a big problem. And that's always been a problem in churches. And even in a corporate context, if you promote somebody within your organization, who all of a sudden they get a taste of responsibility and a taste of um, leadership. All of a sudden it changes them and transforms them into like a little tyrant. Like, wow, we have, a pro- we have a culture problem on our hands now because this person is affecting the entire culture. Diotrephes is gatekeeping on the kind of people that he wants in the church. He's, he's myopic. 
And is this sort of tyranny, and I'm using that strong language of tyranny, it's, it's coming from a place of wounded pride and bitterness. And the reason I'm saying, saying tyranny is because in the Greco-Roman rule, world, an ed, a platonic education, which would have been common, which Diotrephes would have been aware of at this time, Plato's Republic written like 380 years before this. And one of the things Plato said was, you know, you could have a monarchy that is benevolent and loving and wise. That could be a good form of government because if you have one person who's concerned about those whom they are called to lead and rule, that could be a beneficial form of government. The problem with monarchy is that it has a tendency to become tyranny. And what Plato said about tyranny and tyrants was he said, here's the thing with tyrants. They'll sleep with anyone who flatters them and they execute anyone who questions them. So what we have here is a leader who is willing to accept anyone who will sort of affirm them and flatter them, and he's kicking people out of the church that question him. Code red. This is an abuse of authority just waiting to happen, because, of course, the cross teaches us that the way up uh, to leadership is actually the way down. And he goes on to say that, that Diotrephes is spreading nonsense, malicious nonsense about them. Uh, he's gossiping. In the Greek, the word for gossiping is fluero. And fluero comes from the root word fluados. And fluados means something's bubbling over like a bubbling pot. It's boiling and it's bubbling over. And they would say, you're bubbling over. And that's how we got the word gossiping, meaning there's this lot of energy being expended. But it's froth and it's empty and there's no substance in what you're actually saying. So that's what John says about the way that he's talking about the apostles. A massive problem in the church. Let's move on. What is the relevance for our church? What is the relevance for this church here in KW? This church will be a community where both relationships and souls can flourish so long as we choose serving over being served. And the wise guidance of God's precepts over the internal guidance of our own preferences. And then we're introduced to Demetrius. And in contrast to Diotrephes, Demetrius has a good testimony. And John recommends him. And there's a New Testament scholar named James Boyce who surmises that it's quite possible Demetrius was the one that handed this letter from, uh, Gaius, uh, sorry, from John to Gaius. And John is saying, you can trust this guy. This guy deserves hospitality. Demetrius has a good testimony from the truth. And we don't have any specific information, but we have critical information. What we find is that Demetrius, like Gaius, he walked in the truth. He was engaged in his faith. Uh, faith sorry. Thriving churches have always had Demetrius. They've always been full of Demetrius. In order for a church to thrive, it must have Many, 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 exactly like Demetrius. Just showing up, reliable, integrity, loving the people in the chairs in the same room as us, finding a way to bring our gifts, whatever that means, whatever context that is for the just a way of a way of serving and caring and loving. That's why here at Redeemer, when I look at the New Testament and I see what they're doing, that's why in our membership class I say over and over and over, members are ministers. See, if you're not a member here, we're still going to love and care for you. I don't have a tiered system where if you reach out to me and you say, I'm going through something, Paul, can we have a coffee? I don't check the database and go, huh, they're not a member. They're not a member. No coffee for you. That's not how this works. But I'll tell you what it does mean. When it comes to needing to build something, I'm not calling you. 
Because members are ministers. They're committed. When it comes to leadership in the church, it's the members we're looking to. When it's needing to move the mission forward, it's the members we're moving. It doesn't mean, for those of you who are here who aren't members, it doesn't mean you don't love Jesus and you're not a good Christian and I'm being manipulative. No, no. You love Jesus. I get it. You and I are brothers and sisters. This is practical. Practically speaking, you can only build the church with people who you know are going to be there next year. What you can't do is build the church on people who have made no commitment, who if they want to can decide next Sunday, actually I'm out. I give that last sermon a 2 out of 10 and I'm out of here. If you're a member and you give my sermon a 2 out of 10, then you're probably going to say, can we have a coffee? I want to talk to you about your teaching. And that would be totally appropriate. And if I say, yes, let's have a, a coffee, then, I'll, then I'm more like Gaius. If I kick you out of the church, we got a diatrophies here, and then Peter and Rick will go to the presbytery and I'll lose my job, and that would be the appropriate thing. So the relevance here is that the church has got to be built on this kind of service. And this isn't a guilt trip. Serving and loving the people in the chairs around you This is the pathway to joy. This is the pathway to flourishing because it's a pathway out of yourself. If you want to improve your mental health, get out of yourself. If you're here this morning and you struggle with depression and anxiety, I'm not being trite. If you struggle deeply with mental health and you've convinced yourself that you can't afford any to expend any energy caring for other people in the church, volunteering, serving on a team in some way, setting up chords, caring for the children, singing. If you've convinced yourself, no, I don't have the bandwidth, I can't do it. My friend, please hear me. I'm not trying to manipulate you. But to the degree that you're able to get out of yourself so that somebody else is relying on you, something matters, that is going to be a gift, a gift to your soul to flourish, to care. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't know, man, this guy sounds like he's talking like a counselor and you need to stay in your lane as a theologian. Well, you're not wrong, but I will say this. Wise counselors are always trying, if they're secular counselors that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're trying to help people get out of themselves. They're like, get a plant, get a pet, get something. Commit to something where somebody's like expecting you to be there. Like help, help you get out so the soul can flourish. This is Demetrius and we all want to be Demetrius. If we're in Demetrius mode, we'll thoroughly love the community of the church, even when there's problems going on, which there always are, and even if somebody's life is on fire, which it always is, and even if something is sad or tragic, which it always is, because we're curved out of ourselves, we'll care and love the community. But if we're like Diotrephes, looking for a turnkey church, I want everything to sort of suit me, my way of thing. You're never going to enjoy any church community that you're ever in, ever. Because you're always kind of looking for everything sort of kind of curving in on yourself. And you'll be miserable. You'll either be trying to, you'll either be trying to curate the church so that it suits you. Or you'll be constantly in the back of your mind being like, you know, I'm going to leave the church. I don't know. Maybe for some of you, you're like, yo, dude, this sermon is the tipping point. I'm out of here. I don't know. Maybe that's happening right now. But it's not my, it's, it, 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 I'm not, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not me. He rules and reigns over his church, not me. So I'm just reporting to you as faithfully as I can, without apology, to be like, this is how the church has been around for thousands of years. A genuine love and care for the people in the seats around us. And it's glorious. And you might be thinking to yourself, where's the gospel in all of this? And that is a very good question. And I'm going to close my sermon with the gospel. Because there's no... John doesn't unpack the gospel in this short little letter. He's not like Romans where he's like, yo, let's, let's, 
let's draw some parallel lines to justification and soteriology and sanctification and superlapsarianism and, and predestination and all of the Asians. Let's just break it all down. This isn't that kind of a letter. What's happening is John is actually saying, you know what the gospel is? And he knows, Gaius knows what the gospel is. The question is, what the gospel does. And the answer is, it overflows out in a cross-shaped life, with, which Gaius and Demetrius have. And he's got to address this problem in the church because Diotrephes is the antithesis of the cross, is the opposite of the gospel. It's the outworkings of it. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all scripture, God incarnate comes to fulfill millennia of prophecy that God will take one small people group to bless every nation. Because in the beginning when God created everything in perfection, we rejected him, we chose to be our own gods, and humanity has been limping along ever since. And God, even though it would have been just, and he, we would have deserved for him to just sit back like a you know, bad you know, Beth Midler song from the 90s, from a distance, and just not get involved, God chose to get deeply involved from Genesis 3. And he comes in Christ, and he lives the life we could never live, and he shows us a gorgeous, a gorgeous and glorious humanity that we're all sort of, we want, but we're failing at. And he goes to the cross through a substitutionary atonement, and three days later, the tomb is empty, and he rises again. And his material body, uh, bodily resurrection means... But to live a cross-shaped life, to live in accordance to the gospel, will have a transformative effect, and it'll have a transformative effect in the church. And this is what uh, the power of this is all pointing to. There's a legend about Michelangelo, and the legend is that he had a, they said, how did you carve the David? And he said, I had a block of marble, and I just kept chipping away things that didn't look like David. Nobody really knows if that's true, but what a glorious picture of a life of sanctification. We're indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then God spends the rest of our life chipping away the things in our character and in our nature that do not look like Jesus, which is ultimately not like the true us. And so I close with this. May we go from this place and live these local, gospel-driven, cross-shaped lives. May we just live simply as ministers with love and care. For maybe a handful of people in this room, you can't love and care deeply for 200 people, but you can pick two or three and just care for them and make those relationships beautiful and matter. May we live this out on our streets or in our buildings with just a few of our co-workers or our friends or on campus. May we live as imitators of Christ and may we live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. Amen. Let's pray.